All right, so this week we're going to look at the marks of the church. Okay, so that'll be under your, fir- your first point there. What distinguishes and marks the church? Okay, so while scripture discusses the definition of a church generally, it also discusses these individual or these specific marks of a church uh, quite, a, quite frequently, actually, in the New Testament. So these marks help us to be better at being the church and to help us tell the difference between a true church and a false one. And I wonder if you have categories for a false church, okay? So Paul taught that pagan temples in Corinth were making their sacrifices to demons and not to God. That's 1 Corinthians 10.20. Probably a false church, right? Also, Scripture speaks in Revelation of Jewish religious assemblies that were really, quote, synagogues of Satan, Revelation 2.9, okay? So in other words, there is scriptural evidence for the category of false churches or groups that may claim the name of God or the title of church but are not filled with the believers and do not preach the truth and do not glorify God. And this category of nominal churches in name only should not surprise us because this would exist in any category of anything that there is out there, right? Calling yourself a doctor does not make you a doctor, right? Um, our culture is a little confused on some of that, but I won't get into that. <laughs> <clears throat> the point of scripture, though, is that these false churches will be judged rather than glorified on the last day. So we must know that every group that says it's a true church does not necessarily meet that standard. So Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, some would say the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church are not true churches in the biblical sense. In addition, we might add liberal Protestant mainline churches that continue to exist but do not preach the gospel. Um, These would not fall under the category of true churches. But on what claims are these based, right? So what are the standards that Scripture says must um, identify a true church and then therefore a false church? So since the Reformation, Christian theologians have largely settled on two distinguishing marks of a Christian church, okay? Those marks are, first, the right preaching of the word, and two, the right administration of the sacraments, okay? And we'll go into these, but the sacraments would include baptism, the Lord's Supper, and then church discipline kind of more indirectly, okay? So the two marks of a biblical church are the right preaching of the word and the right administration of the sacraments. So the Augsburg Confession, which is the Lutheran statement of faith, think Martin Luther from the Reformation, Protestant Reformation, states that the church is defined by, quote, the congregation of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments are rightly administered. That's Article 7, in case you were wondering. John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, writes, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there it is not to be doubted a church of God exists. Calvin was poetic in his description there. So as you can see, Luther and Calvin largely agreed uh, about the basic criteria upon which we could say that a true church existed. And while the state of these criteria is sometimes difficult to determine, admittedly, these are the litmus tests that the reformers used <clears throat> in assessing whether we have a church or whether or not we don't have a church or whether we don't have a church. Okay? <clears throat> so let's look at that first mark, the right preaching of the word. 
Preaching of the word <clears throat> is central to the church's life because it is the primary means by which God creates and imparts spiritual life to all his people. You've got a whole uh, list of scripture for you to look at later on if you want to do so. In the Old Testament, right, God created the material universe by his word. He gave his law to his chosen people, Israel. So I'm just establishing this pattern of how God uh, used, the, you know, used the word to create. Moses told Israel that, that this law, you know, these were not just idle words. These words are their very life and that by them they will live long in the promised land. That's Deuteronomy 32, 47. He spoke, God spoke his words through the prophets, guiding and correcting his people. Therefore, it doesn't surprise us. There's no change of pace here when we get to the New Testament. God's words remain central to the church in the New Testament as well. So 1 Corinthians 1.21 says, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. In Romans 10, Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But he immediately follows that up with some important questions, right? you're familiar with that text how can people call on the name of the lord if they have not believed in him and how can they believe in him if they have not heard of him and how can they hear about him without someone what preaching to them and then paul sums it all up in romans 10 17 saying consequently faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of christ so for Paul, the right preaching of the word is of utmost importance, which is why he would write in 2 Timothy 3 uh, and 4, from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, Paul writing to Timothy, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So what is the cause of faith in Christ Jesus? Scripture, the word of God. Um, he would go on to say, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, I give you this charge Timothy, preach the word, okay? Also, maybe a little bit less familiar, uh, consider this purpose statement from Jesus' earthly ministry in Mark one thirty-five. <clears throat> and he, Jesus, said to them, to his disciples, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So think about that. The second person of the Trinity coming to earth in flesh and his earthly ministry, his purpose statement in, in his ministry on earth is to go and preach, right? So that's all that to say that uh, the central and most important mark of a godly, pure, healthy church is the right preaching of and prioritizing of God's word. Chris? Yes. What was that last scripture? <clears throat> Mark one thirty-five. <laughs> well, let me let me probably a typo. Thanks. Thank you. Was it 138? Okay. Yes. 138. Yes. Thank you. It starts. It starts in 35. I probably meant to. Yeah. 138. Yeah. Do what? Yeah. 138. Thank you. Or 35 through 39, if you want to read the whole, the whole context there. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. Yes. You may be getting here, but I was thinking, like, 
Healthy church, yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And I'm just thinking even in terms of like the preaching of the word, mm-hmm. like how, how do you distinguish between weak preaching that is still true preaching and where we would look at a church and just say, that's actually so weak, we can't even tell you a thing. So how do you distinguish between, well, so I think there's a question of like quality Versus like content, right? So if the gospel, um, I think we'll get to this a little bit. Yeah, it's kind of the next point. So the right preaching of the word, is, this is the next point here, will always commend Jesus Christ and the gospel. So someone may be doing that, but not doing it particularly yeah. well. or and, and by well, I mean yeah. maybe just stylistically or not very thoroughly, or maybe it's simplistic and there's not a whole lot else. But we could say, yeah, the, the gospel is, is proclaimed in that church, although there the may Bible be some things lacking. They're and they're preaching from the Bible yeah. versus a church that you could go on any given Sunday morning and not hear the gospel. And it's some platitudes from the preacher about how to live a better life. Yeah. And those things may or may not be true. Or they may be true. It may not be necessarily, you know, they may not be teaching people to, you know, worship Satan or whatever. Yeah. But if the gospel is not clearly proclaimed then whatever they're doing it's not church but that's a good i think that's a good distinguish between these two marks of a true church versus there you know there still may be some things that are left to be desired yeah and i think we all can probably have experiences in churches like that maybe where it's you know the gospel's there but maybe it's hard to grow there's not a lot of yeah right yeah it's bare bones yeah without much flesh so yeah that's a good distinction yep <clears throat> one of the reasons that it's so important for the you know the church to handle scripture rightly is that these teach the teaching and preaching ministries of the, of the local church are often the prerequisite to every other mark of health and purity in the church in other words if you don't get that part right it's unlikely that you're going to get anything else that flows from it right okay it's, you know, it's essentially what, uh, what keeps in check everything else, you know, that might flow from that church. So, I mean, it's hard to imagine, um, you know, discipling. It's hard to imagine um, faithful evangelism. It's hard to imagine um, any of those other things. Yeah, it's hard to imagine any of the other eight marks of a healthy church, if we're going to reference the nine marks of a healthy church, um, being in place if that cornerstone of next step is not in place. Okay. So it's only by placing a primacy on teaching and hearing the word of God that we'll be able as a church to make biblical decisions about how to sustain the worship disciplines and ordinances of a God-glorifying church, those other marks of a healthy church. Okay. So back to Sam's question. This is where we're going here. What does the right preaching of the word look like? So <clears throat> the right preaching of the word will always commend Jesus Christ and the gospel. So this is at the heart of the message of Scripture, that God sent his son to suffer God's wrath for man's sin so that we may have eternal life. If that is absent from the preaching and teaching of a church, then they are by definition not a church. Okay? If we miss this point, we miss the fundamental point of God's word. The right preaching of God's word exalts God himself. Okay? 
the right preaching of the word also endeavors to preach all of God's word. And this might be a little bit more to that point. The whole counsel, as 2 Timothy 3.16 puts it. So while the gospel informs everything, right? It's that right, the right understanding of the gospel informs everything. It's not, the gospel itself is not everything. There is more to be said. Uh, you may think of the Great Commission, right? We're, we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel, teaching them all that Christ has commanded. So we learn, um, as God's people, we learn from Scripture. We grow by his spirit in order to be more conformed to, uh, to Christ. We learn more about who God is, about our fallen state, our condition under God's righteous judgment, and we learn how to follow God in obedience so that we don't sin against him, all from hearing the right preaching of the word of God. Okay, So all in all, churches must be devoted to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and teaching, if we are to be faithful to God's calling. So consider 1 Timothy 4.13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Paul's words to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.13. Any other questions or any questions at this point? <clears throat> that we move on from right preaching of the word. Great. Yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately, that when we first went to Austria, that kind of was the norm. And so when we came back and we came to this area first time, we had a hard time finding anybody who's preaching exposition. Yeah. And so when you don't have exposition preaching, it's very easy to just kind of hit on your your pet topic. Right. And and, and maybe use <clears throat> biblical verses to support your position. So that it looks like it's biblical preaching, right? Well, in a sermon for a, a pet peeve of my professor was that you would bounce all over scripture, yeah. start over here, and end up way over here. And in the meantime, you said pretty much what you wanted the Bible to say right. in the sermon. Yeah. But was it what the passage said? Right. So expositional preaching, as Frank alluded to, is that the main point of the passage is the main point of the sermon that was preached. Yeah. And using the Bible to preach. Yeah. Uh, that's good. That's, really that's good. Yeah. 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 So true. So true. All right. Well, let's let's turn to these two sacraments or to the the two ceremonies that Christ ordained for his followers. The two ceremonies that Christ commanded his church to perform and those are baptism and the Lord's Supper, which is sometimes referred to as communion. So you have there from on your uh, handout on inside uh, that lengthy Article 15 from the UB Statement of Faith. So let me read this to you, okay? And you follow along. Both of baptism and Lord's Supper are in here. We'll do baptism first, and then we'll talk about the Lord's Supper. We believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of Christ, instituted by him and belong to the gathered church, marking off believers from unbelievers and making the church visible on earth. Remember, we talked about the church being visible and invisible last week. We believe that baptism is obligatory upon every believer, wherein one is baptized in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that it is to be done by immersion to show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior and our death to sin and resurrection to a new life. 
that its only proper subjects are those who do actually profess repentance towards God and faith in and obedience to the Lord Jesus, that it is prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. We believe that the Lord's Supper is to be observed by his churches until the end of the world, that it is to be observed by the eating of bread and the drinking of the cup, and that it is no, it is in no sense a sacrifice. You'll see why that's important. But it is designed to commemorate his death to confirm the faith and other graces of Christians and to be a bond, a pledge, and a renewal of their communion with him and of their fellowship and of their church fellowship. Okay, so let's look at baptism first. Baptism is an act of obedience in which a believer in Christ publicly confesses his faith. Scripture commands baptism, but there has often been confusion, right, as to its significance. And that confusion is over the meaning of baptism and has led to, unfortunately, unbiblical teaching about who is to be be baptized and how. Okay, so let's look at three biblical statements about baptism. Okay. And those are subpoints A, B, and C under this topic. So first of all, only believers should be baptized. It's important to understand that Scripture indicates very clearly that a conscious profession of faith in Christ always precedes baptism. Baptism is to be an outward sign that a person is beginning the Christian life in obedience to Christ. So just a few examples from Scripture. Acts 2.41 Those who accepted the message, the gospel message, were baptized. So first, belief, then baptism. Acts 8.12, when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news, they were baptized. Notice that that it is after Philip has told the Ethiopian eunuch the message of scripture, later on in Acts 8, particularly the good news about Jesus, that the Ethiopian requests baptism, saying in Acts 8.36, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized, was the the Ethiopian's question. So in these passages, and there are plenty others like them, those being baptized give an outward indication of an inward faith in Christ before they are baptized, right? So in the New Testament, only those who personally profess faith in Christ are baptized. This truth on its face precludes infants from being baptized, since infants are incapable of making a public profession of faith in Christ. So the controversy over who should be baptized involves a larger difference over the meaning of and the nature of the church. In other words, so we may be asking, what does this have to do with the church? How does one become a part of the church? So Roman Catholics would argue that baptism actually regenerates and makes someone a true Christian and thus a member of the universal church. So the teaching from the Roman Catholic Church is that baptism works ex opere operato, which means from the work performed. This means that the physical act of baptizing itself is what conveys conveys grace on the one baptized, regardless of the intent or the beliefs of the person being baptized. By way of illustration, who has seen Nacho Libre? Come on now. Okay. Do you remember the scene where Nacho baptizes his friend Stephen? And before he baptizes him, he, he wants to talk to him about the gospel. And Stephen says, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. And then like a few scenes later, Nacho's kind of walking around. They're, they're wrestlers, for those of you who haven't seen it. They're uh, luchadors in Mexico. And, and Nacho, is Roman, he's a Roman Catholic uh, monk. And uh, Stephen's his friend, his atheist friend, and they're tag team partners in wrestling. 
So Nacho's concerned about uh, Stephen's salvation. And so he's talking to him about something. He walks up behind him with a bowl of water, and he just dunks his head in there. And it's just it's comical, but... I mean, according to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, Stephen is, is you know, grace is con- conferred upon him, and he's saved. Um, but, you know, clearly, you know, as humorous as this is, this, this idea of baptism is contrary to Scripture's teaching um, that salvation is by, gra- uh, by grace through faith in Christ, and that men are saved by grace and not by works. So that would be a <laughs> kind of understanding of the Roman Catholic Church's teaches on baptism. Uh, maybe a little bit more similar to us would be those the view of paedo-baptists uh, like Methodists or Episcopalians or Presbyterians or Lutherans, or Lutherans who, who practice infant baptism but don't teach that the baptism itself is regenerate. But they would argue that the baptism of a child who's born into a believing family <clears throat> makes the child a member of the covenant community, okay? And that this baptism symbolizes probable future regeneration, but does not confer salvation as the Roman Catholics teach, okay? <clears throat> so, <clears throat> Paedo-Baptists will argue, will base their arguments for the baptism of infants by speaking or pointing to examples of household baptisms in the New Testament. They say that the baptism of households noted in the New Testament necessarily means that children were baptized. <clears throat> but, if we explore these passages and these arguments, we find that there is no conclusive scriptural, scriptural support for non-believers, infant or otherwise, being baptized. Furthermore, the absence of New Testament precedent for infant baptism is a fact conceded by one of the most prominent theologians uh, from, this, uh, from the Presbyterian denomination, and that would be the theologian B.B. Warfield, who I would commend to you to read on just about any other topic other than maybe infant baptism. Uh, but even he says, quote, it is true that there is no express command to baptize infants in the New Testament. This is someone who supports infant baptism. No express record of the baptism of infants and no passages so stringently implying, implying it that we must infer from them that infants were baptized. Frank. <clears throat> Well, yeah, because as we see, a lot of their arguments uh, hangs on the understanding of circumcision in the Old Testament. We're going to talk about right. that. But. Well, and it also hangs on logic. And if you're going to talk about infant baptism and point to the household baptism, you have to read into that. How right. do you know what the household consists of? Right. A household could be, you know, teenagers. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean there was an infant right. in there. You yeah. have to read that into it, yeah. which in every other instance they would say, <coughs> Yeah, it's largely an argument from silence of Scripture <laughs> on the matter, um, which, again, we don't typically, no. is, is not no. persuasive <laughs> in, other, in other doctrines, is it? So, um, a, Another argument, as Frank alluded to, or maybe was alluding to, put forth by Pato Baptist, is that baptism in the New Testament is parallel to physical circumcision in the Old Testament, okay? 
So they would reason that because infants were circumcised in the Old Testament as an outward sign of entrance into the new into the covenant community, this means that infants of believers are rightly to be baptized and as an outward sign of entrance into the new covenant community. Thus, the Paedo-Baptist asserts that the unbelieving children of a believer are in the new covenant. So there's a lot that could be said in opposition to this position. For the sake of time, we can't go into all of that. Um, so these comments I'm going to make are certainly not exhaustive, but a couple things to think about. First of all, circumcision in the Old Testament was given to all who lived among the people of Israel, including servants. If you want to look at Genesis 17, 10 through 13, you can see that. So it was not, yeah. Just very clearly, <clears throat> this is something my wife pointed out, girls were not circumcised. Yeah. So they're kind of baptized. Yes, that's exactly right. Right, if the parallel is consistent. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. Yep. Um, all has to be clarified because it was a male. Right. It was all male. All males, yep. Um, and it was also not restricted to uh, only those who had true inward spiritual life, such as baptism does. So in this sense, physical circumcision and baptism are not parallel, right? The New Testament counterpart of Old Testament physical circumcision is what? Spiritual circumcision, not baptism, okay? So Paul draws the conclusion that the New Testament parallel for, old, for physical circumcision is the circumcision of the heart, Colossians 2, 11 through 12. He also writes, Paul does, in Romans 2, 29, that real circumcision is circumcision of the heart, spiritual rather than physical. So faith was not a requirement of entrance into the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, but it certainly is a requirement for entrance into the New Covenant. Okay? So we don't need to come up with some other parallel when Paul says, no, the New Testament parallel for Old Testament circumcision is inward circumcision of the heart. Uh, we can also see many examples in Scripture where the physical in the Old Covenant represented the spiritual in the New Covenant as well. For example, whereas in the Old Testament, the promised land was a physical earthly type of the saints' final rest in heaven, now all that is left is the spiritual reality of heaven itself. We are not... When we sing we are bound for the promised land, we're not talking about that little strip of land uh, over there on the east of the Mediterranean. Okay? Um, also, the temple sacrifices were a type of the reality of Christ's death. So after Christ, we no longer perform sacrifices because the earthly type is no longer needed. Now we see the spiritual reality of Christ's sacrifice for us. And I'm sure there are other examples that you can think of. As I said, this is not an exhaustive, exhaustive list. Okay? The second point to make kind of in opposition of pedo-baptism is that the only covenant community discussed in the New Testament is the church. Whereas entrance into the old covenant community was by physical birth, we find entrance into the new covenant community through spiritual birth. So that parallelism continues. The means of entrance into the new covenant church is voluntary, spiritual, and internal. Think about Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 36 which tells us that the new covenant community will be those who have God's law written on their hearts, right? A person becomes a member of the new covenant body of believers by being born again through saving faith or by, and have saving faith, not by physical birth. Uh, a quote from someone who commented on this says, families may pass through the narrow gate, but they must do so in single file. One writer astutely notes that to say that all physical infants of believers are in the new covenant as the infants of Abraham were in the covenants of the Old Testament violates the doctrine of particular redemption. 
if Christ's sacrifice is offered up only for his elect, uh, as what our Lord called the new covenant in my blood, how can the unregenerate children of believers be said to be in this new covenant? Okay. So in the New Testament church, the only question that matters is whether one has saving faith and has been born and has been spiritually incorporated into the body of Christ, the true church. Thus, to conclude, we understand the Bible to teach that baptism is appropriately administered only to those who make a believable profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism is not something to which a person is brought, but to which he comes, contrary to Macho Libre. All right, second of all, the second statement, believers should be baptized by immersion, okay? In every clear example of baptism the Bible gives us, the method or mode of baptizing is the same. Believers are baptized by immersion. The Greek word baptizo, used in most relevant passages on baptism, usually means to plunge, dip, or immerse something underwater. For example, Mark 1.5, the people of Jerusalem went out to John confessing their sins. They were baptized in the river Jordan. John's gospel also tells us that John the Baptist was baptizing people at Anon, which is a location. And do you know, this is kind of an obscure passage. You may not be familiar with this one, but do you know why he was baptizing there? There was plenty of water there, the text reads. So the need for plenty of water would seemingly not be an issue if these people were being sprinkled. Okay, that's John three twenty three. You know, reference that. <clears throat> Mark one also indicates that after Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water. Or again, the the uh, story of the Ethiopian eunuch that we referenced earlier in Acts eight. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, "Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized?" And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized them. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. So two observations from that text. We're told that the Ethiopian was on his way home from Jerusalem. Now, if you were traveling from Jerusalem to Ethiopia, you would most likely have some water with you to make that track, right? Um, certainly enough water to be baptized by sprinkling, right, if that was what you were inclined to do. There would be no need for them to, to get out of the chariot and go down into the water if all Philip was going to do was take a handful of water and place it on his head. Right? Now, beyond kind of the contextual indications, um, the other important point on immersion is that the symbolism of union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection seems to require baptism by immersion. Okay? So, growing up, my dad was a preacher and I remember when he would baptize people he would say it in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit buried with Christ in the likeness of his death and raised to walk in newness of life and he's quoting Romans 6, 3-4 through 4 there right? Paul says do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead we too may walk in newness of life. So note that baptism by sprinkling does not supply the picture of resurrection that the apostle expects from baptism. Baptism by immersion, however, gives us a rich symbolism than just that of washing away of sins. It describes going into the waters of judgment for our sin, dying, right? 
and being saved through Christ's death and subsequent resurrection. So I hope that that point isn't so much to help you win an argument with a pedo-baptist as it is the next time you see a baptism to, to be reminded that the new believer is buried with Christ in the likeness of his death and raised to walk in newness of life. Okay? Yeah, praise God. Yeah. So both contextual clues and apostolic statements on the symbolism of baptism should lead us to conclude that baptism by immersion is the form that most fully preserves and accomplishes the meaning of baptism. Okay? The third point under baptism, baptism is not necessary for salvation, but is an act of, an o- of obedience that symbolically expresses one's faith in and submission to Christ. Those are your three, bl- three blanks on point B there. I can. Baptism is not necessary for salvation, but is an act of of obedience that symbolically expresses one's faith in and submission to Christ. Baptism is not required for salvation, but it is an essential part of our obedience to Christ. Some would say our first step of obedience. Uh, Since Jesus commanded all those who believe to be baptized. So if you think back to our discussion of the doctrines of salvation earlier in the semester, you'll remember that regeneration precedes faith, comes before faith. Baptism is commanded for all those who have come to faith. So when I'm regenerated and converted, I immediately am justified before God, right? Justification is a one-time permanent event. And then since baptism follows this instantaneous and permanent process of sins being forgiven and coming to new spiritual life through faith in Christ, one cannot logically say that baptism is required for salvation, right? You have to get that, the order of salvation correct, and that helps you understand uh, that, that baptism is not salvific, okay? But on the same, you know, within the same uh, point, we would want to say that it's also clear from Scripture that baptism is necessary for obedience to Christ. It follows a profession of faith uh, throughout Acts, within the writings of both Peter and Paul, so 1 Peter 3, Romans 6, as we referenced earlier. And these assume that wherever possible, all the Christians in the various churches will have been baptized. Okay? So baptism is a simply a public testimony of God's work in us by the Holy Spirit and then thus an act of obedience to Christ. It's a visible way for us to identify ourselves as followers of Christ, making clear our allegiance to Jesus and to his commandments. So because baptism is a clear and outward sign of obedience, refusal of baptism is a clear and outward sign of disobedience. And thus baptism is a prerequisite for membership in a biblically sound church. Any questions here before we move on? Nick. Uh, might just be messing with language, but like when I always read like art, like when I read it in Article 15 or in other contexts, where he's, he's put on this phrase of it being obligatory, mm-hmm. obligatory upon every believer. Mm-hmm. And how do we respond to, like, say the believer, you know, like the person obviously on the cross, he wasn't able to be yeah. baptized. Yeah. Like, so how do we, like, in framing this language, like, you know, it's obviously not a requirement, but it's heavily emphasized as yeah. kind of a response. Yeah, I, I would say, I mean, I think that's what, I think obligatory 
conveys that, right? It's the, the obligation, right? So in any other sense, an obligation is what one is expected to do insofar as they are capable of doing so. The thief on the cross couldn't, there was, there was no possible way for him to be immersed, you know, as an act of obedience prior to his death. Um, had he been somehow set free or led off the cross, I think the obligation would have been that. Uh, Fair enough. I always just think about baptized. that as yeah. the language of, is, you know, it's not necessary for salvation, right. but we also still emphasize a great priority. Yeah, 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 it's, ne- it's necessary. I mean, in the same way, I think that, like, it, it's kind of this, to me, it's similar to the, to the, you know, to James, the book of James, when he, you know, when we talk about faith without works is dead, right? Like, our works don't save us, but James would say that, you know, a faith that has no works is probably not legitimate. And so a believer that professes Christ but then could get baptized but doesn't, you know, I think there's, at the very least, there should be some questions that should not be the norm. Right. Yeah. Okay. Is that helpful? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there are going to be some other cases where people can forget. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. You know. Deathbed conversions or. Yeah, but mm-hmm. what about someone who's paralyzed? Right. Except, that's right. It's the exception to the rule. Yeah. That he should be baptized. Yeah. Good. Good. Okay. Let's move on for the sake of time. So the next, uh, uh, the next mark of a healthy church is the right administration of the Lord's Supper, or what is sometimes referred to as communion. Okay. So while baptism is an ordinance to be observed once, as a Christian's public expression of faith in Christ at the beginning of his or her Christian life. Christians are to observe communion or the Lord's Supper regularly in continuing fellowship with Christ. Jesus instituted, as you know, the Lord's Supper the night before he went to the cross. Matthew 26, 26 and following. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So in addition, Jesus calls his followers to do this in remembrance of me, this Lord's Supper, showing that it was intended to be done after Jesus' death and resurrection. And we see Christians such as the church in Corinth doing this very thing, 1 Corinthians 11. Okay? So what is the meaning of the Lord's Supper? Well, there are at least four things that the Lord's Supper signifies, if you want to write these down, and I'll give these to you. Uh, First of all, it signifies Christ's death, probably the most obvious. When we participate in communion, we symbolize the death of Christ because our actions give a picture of his death for us. So the two elements are bread and wine, or juice at UBC, um, (laughs) and many Baptist churches, I would say, in the South. Uh, But the broken bread symbolizes Christ's body, okay? And the cup symbolizes the pouring out of Christ's blood, right? Um, In order for us to have juice or wine from grapes, the grapes had to be crushed, right? In order for wheat to become bread, it must be crushed and broken. It must die. So Christ's death is symbolized every time we take the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, 26 is very clear on that. Um, The second 
thing is, that is symbolized is the believer's participation in the crucified Christ. The believer's participation in the cruci- crucified Christ. Jesus commanded all of his disciples to take and eat. When we individually reach out and take the bread or the cup for ourselves, we give a symbol that we are participating and sharing in the benefits found in Christ's redemption. Okay, so it is an active participation in the crucified Christ. The third, uh, th- the fir- third thing that is symbolized is spiritual nourishment. Okay, just as ordinary food nourishes our physical bodies. So the elements of communion symbolize the nourishment and refreshment that Christ is giving to our soul. This might be a little bit harder to imagine when we're taking a little paper-thin wafer and a, you know, and half an ounce of juice. I would imagine that probably in the New Testament church is probably a chunk of bread. And, maybe, you know, obviously there's, you know, different reasons, practical reasons for why that is. Uh, also, but also to make sure and eat before you come. Yeah, eat, eat before, that's right. That is true. That is true. Yes. Yeah, Paul did say that too. So that's a good point. It's a symbol. It's symbolism. That's right. Good. Um, and then the third thing is that of the unity of believers. The unity, or the fourth thing, sorry, the unity of believers. So when Christians participate in the Lord's Supper together, it's not only me and Jesus, right? It's us with Christ, you know. And we're picturing also the, you know, the future marriage supper of the Lamb. Where so there's a forward-looking aspect to this, and there is certainly the unity of believers. Okay. So those are the four things: Christ's death, the believers participation in the crucified Christ, spiritual nourishment, and the unity of believers. Hopefully one or all four of those things course through your mind as you take the Lord's Supper uh, each time. So how is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? We'll go through these briefly. This is one of those things where you may want to do some more reading and thinking through. But when speaking of the Lord's Supper, there have been different views about Christ's relation uh, to his supper. It's been said that the words, this is my body, are the most disputed four words in the Bible, okay? And it all depends on what the meaning of the word is, is, okay? <laughs> Nick, you, yeah, I knew Nick would like that one. Is can, I, can indicate identity. It can indicate attribute, cause, resemblance, or fulfillment. That's just the reality of our language. So with respect to Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper, the debate is between those who argue that is equals identity and those who assert that is equals resemblance, okay? So before we consider these views, let me just give you a, a quick grammar lesson, and I'm no grammarian. Um, but to say this is my hand is to use is to state identity, right? Uh, to repeat the words from James 3.6 that the tongue is a fire is to use the word is symbolically, right, or resemblance, okay? And they're both legitimate expressions or you know meanings of the word is okay so here are the three different views that flow from how you understand this is my body uh, from jesus's words in the last supper so the first is transubstantiation turn to your neighbor and say transub you don't have to do that (laughs) roman catholics teach this view okay which asserts that the bread and wine actually become in their essence the body and blood of christ So at the moment in the Mass when the priest says, this is my body, the bread becomes the literal physical body of Christ. For them, is connotes identity. And so they understand the Lord's Supper to be a physical representation of the sacrifice of Christ. We would argue that this would be counter to the... uh, Once for all sacrifice. 
Yeah, to Hebrews 6, 6, which where the author of Hebrews says, let's not, let's not re-crucify Christ, okay? Um, but that's the, that's the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper. The second one, the second common view is, is consubstantiation, okay? Luther put forward this view, and many Lutherans still adhere to it. They teach that although the bread and wine do not actually become the literal blood and body of Christ— the physical body of Christ is literally present in, with, and under the physical bread and wine. So the analogy here that uh, might be helpful is kind of like water in a sponge. So the idea being that Christ's body is somehow contained in the elements, right? So the sponge and the water are still two separate things, but when you grab a hold of a sponge that's wet, it's got the water in there with it. Maybe that's uh, faithful to their understanding of consubstantiation. Um, but that's the Luther, the Lutheran teaching uh, on that view. The th- if, uh, yeah. If that, I, I've never really thought of this before, but if that be true, if it's somehow still in there, doesn't that still violate the idea that there's a sacrifice happening again? I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Yeah. I mean, that's, <coughs> I've never thought of that for the first time because we were in a Catholic country. Yeah. So it would be very clear what we even thought yeah. about. But Luther probably thought he was being, I and mean, he was being, uh, you know, per, uh, differentiating himself in that view of the Lord's Supper, he just may not have gone far enough. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Church history, there's always two extremes. It's the third way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, and I think uh, to to Sam's point, I think Luther was trying to to maintain the literal sense of Jesus's words. Um, So, yeah. The the third view of the Lord's Supper is that of uh, symbolism of the the spiritual presence of Christ. Okay, in the Lord's Supper. So these are the views held by the rest of Protestant churches, as well as uh, as of UBC, as you saw in the uh, statement of faith that we read. And there were three reformers. What was his name? Yes, sir. So the bread and wine symbolize the body and blood of Christ. They give a visible sign of the fact of his true, though spiritual presence. Okay? It's a visible sermon uh, where those who are believers feed on Christ by faith. Okay? But it is symbolic. All right? Okay. So the next question is, who should participate in the Lord's Supper? So there are three requirements for receiving the Lord's Supper appropriately. Uh, you, you know, some, some pastors refer to the time before the Lord's Supper is administered uh, where these requirements are communicated to the congregation as fencing the table. Okay. <clears throat> um, so these three requirements. First, one must be a believer in Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 11, 29, and 30. Um, we are... What we are doing, as we said, is in participation with our Savior. So it doesn't make sense for a non-believer to take the Lord's Supper. Okay. Second of all, one must have been baptized. So baptism is clearly a symbol, as we have already talked about, of beginning the Christian life and entrance into the church, while the Lord's Supper is clearly a symbol of continuing the Christian life in the context of the church. Not to get to whatever, but one analogy to this would be um, you know, the conjugal rights of a husband and wife would not be 
um, appropriated if they hadn't first been married, right? So to take the Lord's Supper without having been baptized, kind of analogous to, you know, to sharing the conjugal rights of a husband and wife without first going through the wedding ceremony. Um, and then third, one must come in a spirit of self-examination and must be in fellowship with the others of the uh, with other people in the body, in a way that reflects Christ's character. We are not to eat and drink in an unworthy manner, being careless of our sin. Again, First Corinthians eleven. So those are the three things: a believer in Christ, or we could put those two together and say a baptized believer in Christ, and then obviously examining ourselves um, to see if there's any sin that needs to be confessed among us. Okay. All right, um, let's go on. We'll skip the questions here for the sake of time and look at church discipline, okay? So the kind of the, the, the third indirect sacrament of the church. It has often been assumed that the Lord's Supper necessarily entails church discipline, um, which is the fourth qualification of a healthy church that we're looking at today. Uh, it's been said that John 3.16 was the, the verse of the Bible that most people knew, even those who were probably unchurched. Uh, today, some would argue that Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest ye be judged, uh, may hold that position of distinction, okay? But as unpopular as the idea of church discipline is, Christians are called to be discerning and to protect the church from those who would remain under its banner and yet continue to lead unrepentant lives. God's people have always been called to be holy because God himself is holy, Leviticus 19, 1. Yet we have many examples of God's people, particularly in the Old Testament, rebelling in idolatry and unrighteousness by profaning the name of Yahweh, and, or I should say in profaning the name of Yahweh. The clean and the unclean are never to be mixed. From the first sin, Adam and Eve were banished from Eden and their unhindered, unhindered fellowship with God was lost. Through Moses, God gave his law to Israel, teaching them this very principle through discipline. Membership in God's family has many privileges, but it also has an obligation to resist sin. So it shouldn't surprise us to see discipline being commanded in the New Testament church. In chastising the church in Corinth for failing to exercise church discipline, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 writes, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. While formative teaching is considered church discipline and a necessary part of church, we're specifically going to be talking in our short time this morning about corrective teaching. Okay? So what are the purposes of church discipline? All right, let me give you some of these. Why, why should the church practice discipline? Um, some may say in our day and age, doesn't this detract from God's love rather than enhance it? Shouldn't the focus be on mercy and not judgment? Well, here are some reasons why we as a church should follow God's word in practicing church discipline. Okay, So three reasons. First, for restoration and reconciliation of the believer who is going astray. Okay, For restoration and reconciliation of the believer who is going astray. Sin hinders fellowship with God among believers as well as between individual believers. In the, in the case of a confessed Christian who is unrepentant in his sin... It's commanded of the church to admonish him in the hope of bringing about repentance and restoration of fellowship, 2 Corinthians 2.6. If repentance doesn't happen, then love and responsibility demand that members of that person's fellowship not ignore gross sin in this person's life, but rather exclude him from their fellowship. 
with the purpose of restoration and reconciliation, okay? As Christians and certainly as church members, one of the worst things that we can do to someone is to assure them that they are saved if they show no desire of repentance, no desire to turn from their sin and back to God. So while church discipline may sound harsh to our modern ears, it is the most loving thing that we can do for someone in these circumstances. A loving God disciplines his children and fellow Christians, members of the church, are often the vehicle that he uses. Discipline is one of the ways God calls us to love each other and should be done in a loving attitude, seeking the best for the person before God. There's a few verses. I wanted to read these, but we're not going to have time. But jot these down just to kind of remind us of the loving aspect of discipline. So Proverbs 13, 24 talks about he who loves his son would discipline him. Hebrews 12, 6. Galatians 6, 1. 1 Corinthians 5, 5. Okay. The second reason we should practice church discipline is to keep sin from spreading to others in the congregation. So discipline of a church member in unrepentant sin may serve as a deterrent to other church members by showing the seriousness and consequences of sin. We are warned in scripture of the danger of sin and how it can spread, right? Like, like bad yeast corrupting the whole batch of dough. Okay, so church discipline can work to prevent that bad yeast from doing such. And then the third reason is to protect the purity of the church and the honor of Christ. So while no believer in this age has a completely pure, sinless heart, when a church member continues to sin in a way that's outwardly evident to others, sometimes Brad will, you'll hear him say, demonstrable, public, and unrepentant sin, right? Um, when, when a sin is demonstrable and public or outwardly evident to others, especially non-believers, the name of Christ is dishonored. Romans 2.24. This is why Paul is shocked that the Corinthians have not disciplined the man who was continuing in willful sin that was known publicly in the church. Paul is deeply concerned about the moral blemishes in the church, certainly for the sake of those committing the sin, but also for the sake of the blemishes themselves and what they say about our Lord. If a church, Here's a question just quick, quickly if someone has a comment. If a church fails to carry out biblical church discipline at all for a number of years, even though there may be evident need of it, what would be the harmful results in that church? What might be some of the harmful results of a church not carrying out church discipline when it is needed? Yeah. 
the first time you do it right, it's going to be called into question. Right. right? No, yeah. you're, you're just attacking them, right. not the actual rule underneath it. It's not mm -hmm. the rule. It's just like you're wanting to do harm to them. Yeah. All good points. Can you recall a situation in your own life where a gentle word of admonition resulted in a positive change in your own behavior? Anybody care to share? Okay. There was a, a church that Nicole and I were a part of back when we were first married um, that was probably the first church that I was a part of that, that I saw practice church discipline. And there was a, a man in the church, married man, who was pursuing a woman who was not his wife. And the, the biblical steps of church discipline were, were carried out. And I remember thinking in that, and of course, it was, it was hard, it was painful, for everybody involved, you know, going through that. But I remember thinking, um, you know, I, I hope that I'm always a part of a church that would love me enough to go after me if I were that man. And I would say by God's grace, 10 years later, that man came back to the church yeah. and was repentant. 10 years. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, uh, let's look at this last point, that of church government. This is, this is probably the one that does not get the fair shake just from a, a time uh, standpoint, but uh, we'll, we'll lay this out, and then you can do some more reading on your own if you feel so inclined. So, um, so what does the scripture say about uh, who governs the church? Okay, So clearly, the church belongs to Jesus, as we mentioned last, last week. He is her head. Yet God does establish earthly authority in scripture. Okay, And there are generally three forms of church government observed with some variety in how each is practiced, okay? So we'll call these three forms uh, Episcopalian government, 
Presbyterian government and congregational government, okay? So first off, Episcopalian. The Episcopalian system gives final authority to an archbishop, okay? So you have an archbishop at the top who then presides over other bishops with lesser authority who then preside over various local churches in an area, which is called a diocese, okay? So the case made for such a system is that the apostles were given authority, uh, authority over churches and so their successors who are seen to be bishops will then do the same. So this form of government was increasingly used in the second century um, of the early church and then continues on today in some traditions. Okay. Uh, the second form is that the Presbyterian system, which gives final authority to a group of elders. Okay, So instead of one person, an archbishop at the top, you have the general assembly, which is a group of elders which then presides, preside over other elder groups, which in the Lutheran Church are called synods, and then or the presbytery within the Presbyterian Church, who have lesser, lesser authority, and then that kind of trickles all the way down to the elders of the local church, which is called a session. Okay? So these elders serve as representatives of the church. So similar to the Episcopalian model, but instead of having a singular person at each level, you have a plurality of elders at each level. And the case made for this system is derived from certain principles in scripture, such as the authority given to elders, Hebrews 13, 17, um, also Acts 15, and the conventional wisdom of uh, cooperating with other churches. Okay? And then the third system is that of congregationalism. So the congregational system leaves each local church autonomous from other local churches. The authority for her affairs is left with the church as a whole. The responsibility of discipline, discipline and doctrine finally lies within the congregation, okay? So while the Episcopalian and Presbyterian models are practiced by others, we at UBC find that congregationalism is the most biblical form of government for local churches. In the New Testament, congregations are specifically given responsibility to rule on such matters as disputes between members, Matthew 18, okay? Matters of doctrine, Galatians 1.8 and 2 Timothy 4.3, as well as matters of church discipline. We're almost finished here, 1 Corinthians 5. Also matters of church membership, 2 Corinthians 2. If we look to the letters written in the New Testament, most of them are written to churches and not to leaders, with a few exceptions. So the idea there is that a priesthood of believers strongly suggests that the church is directly under Christ rather than a hierarchy of bishops. Okay, so where does the office of elder fit into a congregational system like what we practice at UBC? Um, so while we see many examples of the local church being the final court of appeals in areas of discipline and doctrine, we also see, in the same scripture, exhortations for the church to obey her leaders. For example, Hebrews 13, 17. So the elders are not given the final rule, but they are led are to lead the church by providing oversight, teaching, and prayer. So not every matter needs to be decided by the whole church. Right? In 1 Corinthians 6, we see the church is permitted to hand certain matters over to subgroups of the congregation. Okay, So to wrap up, God deliberately set up his church to better portray his glory to a fallen world, and we at UBC want to abide by his rule for his church as the Spirit enables us, both for our good and for his glory.